With me this morning, it is the second reading of the Aliyah Day, Baruch Hashem. Uh, if you hear some printing in the background, I apologize, having to print out some things. We have an early trip to the uh, jail facilities today to do some classes there, so apologize. It's, it is an office after all, right away, right? Of course, right. Baruch Hashem. This is the second uh, day of reading for the uh, Parasha Akari Mot. And we are going to be looking again, of course, at the uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the, the day of Yom Kippur, and more importantly, the concepts of Teshuvah that uh, surround Yom Kippur and Teshuvah in general today. So it's going to be uh, hopefully some good insights. If you have the Art Scroll Chumash, we are going to be on page 641. Again, the Art Scroll Humash, page 641, the second reading from the Parasha Akarimot, comes from the book of Vayikra, uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And we begin reading in verse 18, verse 18 through uh, verse 24. That is the second Aliyah. So let's look here and see what it says, and we'll go back and select some insights for our Torah learning pleasure. Hope you're having a beautiful day out there from wherever you're watching, all across the fruited plain and the entire world, the globe. It says, He shall go out to the altar that is before Adonai and make atonement upon it. He shall take some blood of the bull and some blood of the he-goat and place it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle upon it from the blood with his forefinger seven times. Thus shall he cleanse it and sanctify it from the contaminations of the children of Israel. <clears throat> when he finished atoning for the, the sanctuary, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the living he-goat near, and Aaron shall lean his hands upon the head of the living he-goat and confess upon it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all the rebellious sins among all their sins, and place them upon the head of the he-goat, and send it with a designated man to the wilderness. The he-goat will bear upon itself all their iniquities to all the uninhabited land, and he shall send the he-goat to the wilderness. Aaron shall come to the tent of meeting, and he shall remove the, the linen vestments that he had worn when he entered the sanctuary, and he shall leave them there. He shall immerse himself in water in a sacred place and don his vestments, and he shall go out and perform his own elevation offering and the elevation offering of the people, and he shall provide atonement for himself and for the people. So looking at a few insights here, I want to go back and talk about the scapegoat, which is actually a little bit part of uh, yesterday's Aliyah as well. And see what Rabbi Monk has to say about the scapegoat, because there's some interesting insights here uh, with respect to it. So it says in verse 8, the scapegoat is called Le'azarel, or for Azazel, Slika. Le'azazel, for Azazel. It says, the origin of this name signifies a mighty mountain. This is also implied by the word Eretz Gezerah, an arid mountain land with steep Okay, So it says, The school of Rabbi Ishmael taught that the sacrifice of Azazel is meant to atone for the sins of our Yot, that is, sexual debauchery. This comes from the Talmud Yoma 67b. 
So somebody asked me recently, you know, what does Judaism teach about Hasatan Kurspihi and fallen angels? Um, probably uh, heaven or hell or whatever was implied in all of that as well. The reality is that Judaism does believe in a literal devil. Um, the Yetzer Hara, Hasatan Kurspihi, and the angel of death are all the same entity. They are... Um, on the one hand, they're evil forces, but they are not evil forces that have the power to thwart God. That God uses them for his own divine purposes, his own divine will. Uh, they're his servants, in a way. They're his puppets. Uh, contrary to the concept that some people have, that they're going about their business and God desires this for them or that for them. And uh, Dag Nabbit, the old wisely coyote devil, uh, gets in the way and ruins God's plan. No, that's not how it happens. Uh, I always caution people not to, to be um, demon-focused. Do demons exist? Yes. Do we rebuke them? Absolutely. But don't become obsessed or possessed by that mentality. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally you'll uh, you'll run into people and they'll say, oh, the devil is just fighting me today, or the devil is this, or that. that's just giving glory to the enemy. But the reality is they, that the, the devil uh, does exist. Hell, uh, Judaism does believe in hell. We refer to it to get by the name Gehenna, which is arguably the more proper name, but it doesn't matter. It's still a fiery place of desolation and ugliness and evil and torment so it's the same concept um and judaism does believe in fallen angels as it says right here in um rabbi monk he says talking about the uh, rabbi ishmael is saying that the sacrifice of azazel is meant to atone for the sins of sexual debauchery it says these were said to be the work of fallen angels so for whatever reason, fallen angels and the Jewish idea are the source, the cause, the, the reason why we have sexual debauchery. This goes all the way back to the concept of Lilith, who's considered the mother of demons. And uh, she was lustful, I guess you'd say, uh, jealous of Hava. And she wanted to be with Adam. This is a concept going all the way back to those days. So sexual sin is attributed right to fallen angels. So there you go. If you have a situation in which you're being tempted with debauchery, sexual sin, just know the source. The source is fallen angels. But anyway, I digress. It goes back here. It says, from, uh, so it says, the fallen angels from whom the name Azazel is taken. So it's considered by Rabbi Ishmael in the Talmud that the name Azazel is actually directly related to the word or the phrase for fallen angels. But Rabbi Monk does point out that the Halakha concludes, however, that the scapegoat absolves all sins. Turns out that the scapegoat is a pretty powerful sacrifice it's not really a sacrifice but an offering i guess you'd say and of course spiritually the mashiach is all of this you know uh, we talked during pesach about the messiah being the passover lamb 
Well, of course he is. He's also the the atonement goat. He's also the the goat for Azazel. He's also the daily offering. He's also the peace offering. Why? Because every single offering that's given in the temple or the tabernacle points to the Akedah, points to the the son, quote unquote, who was bound. That they're all based off of that. They all reflect that. They're all shadows of that offering. So Yeshua's offering is all the offerings. Why? Because all the offerings are shadows of his offering. And so therefore Yeshua is also our scapegoat. So the Halakha says the scapegoat absolves all sins, great and small, except for the contaminations of the sac- of the sanctuary and its holiness, which are atoned for by uh, the he-goat. So Ramban quotes Rabbi, uh, um, or excuse me, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, who connects the Azazel with the supernatural demons of the wilderness and with the vile spirit identified as Samael. This connection stems from the fact that the words Sheirim, uh, I'm sorry, Seirim, not Sheirim, but Seirim, used here for he goats is found again in uh, 17.7, Leviticus 17.7, in the sense of demons. Now, this verse that uses this word Seirim happens to be 33 verses later. And so because of that, Ibn Ezra says there's some type of mystery associated with this number, 33, because it's 33 33 verses later from Azazel is this word for demons. So there's a connection between between them somehow. And when I saw that, I just simply thought to myself that, according to tradition anyway, Mashiach was crucified at the age of 33. So perhaps there's an illusion there with that number. I don't know for sure, obviously, but perhaps. So it says, continuing on Rabbi Monk's thoughts here, um, so the we have so far a connection between Azazel and the fallen angels, Azazel and demons. So Rabbi Monk says, it is important to stress that the scapegoat sent to Azazel, the he says here the Azazel demon, has no relationship at all with pagan worship of demons. So it's not as if we're worshiping demons. In fact, it's precisely the 33rd verse from this one, which the Torah forbids sacrifice into demons. Which, by the way, um, I think I've shared this before, it's why eating of blood is one of the reasons, anyway, why eating of blood is forbidden. Because... Uh, one of the pagan customs uh, that's brought down in, in the sources is that the pagans would would you know slaughter an animal, pour its blood into a basin, or maybe dig a pit in the earth and pour the blood in that pit, and they would eat a meal around that basin or that pit of blood. And the reason they would do so is because that blood would attract the demons, and uh, that was a way of of uh, sorcery. Because now they would be able to converse, I suppose, interact with the demons, whatever, uh, gain supposed insights. So when we eat meat that has not been properly koshered, and therefore we're ingesting blood, my friends, you're attracting demons. Demons are attracted to blood. That's the reality. But again, don't get caught up... uh, don't be demon-focused, right? 
The best thing to do is to be righteousness focused. God is all powerful. God is all powerful. He's not, his plans are not thwarted by demons in your life, right? The best way to protect against demons is not to go around rebuking them and go around in the spiritual warfare and, and uh, with the chicken foot and all the, all the, you know, because a lot of that kind of stuff gets into incantations in and of itself. The best way to guard against demonic activity in your life is to be Torah observant. The best way to guard against demonic activity in your life is to perform the mitzvot. The best way to guard against demonic activity in your life is to eat kosher. If you're eating kosher, you're not eating blood, you're not attracting demons. Right? I know, I know, I know. We, we all want the, uh, we want the uh, sparkles. We want the flashes of lightning. We want to say, get thee behind me, Satan. We want to dance around like a bunch of uh, crazy people. Um, and uh, we want to talk to the demon called Legion and get, tell, have him tell us our, his name and all this kind of nonsense and ride around on the floor and say, come out, come out, come out. The best way to, to avoid all that nonsense is just to live for God. If you're living for God, you're not going to be uh, afflicted. Right? I know it's not as glamorous. <laughs> right? I, I'm, being, I'm being somewhat facetious in saying that. But you know what I mean. People, people get addicted to that kind of stuff. But anyway, what am I talking about? Y'all don't want to hear about all that. Um, let's continue on, shall we? It says, in fact, it is precisely the 33rd verse which prevents us or tells us not to sacrifice the demons. Rukashem. Accordingly, Rabbi Eliezer sees the he-goat sent to Azazel not as a sacrifice, but as a gift directed by Adonai, which we will have the effect of causing the demon to revert from its normal role as an accuser of the Jewish people and instead testify in its favor, in their favor, I should say. So there's a mystery here. This is why the scapegoat is considered one of those laws in Judaism as a hulk. Meaning that we don't understand its meaning. It all comes from God. God is the one who sends the gift, as it were, to the, demon, the, the demonic realm. Why? Because that scapegoat has the power somehow to transform, transform rather, the demon's cursing into the demon's blessing, just like Balaam. This alludes to something that hopefully we'll get to today, if not today, tomorrow talking about the fact that God has the power through Teshuvah to turn our past mistakes into merits, our past sins into merits. Only God can do that. How can our past sins become merits? I don't know. I don't know how. But somehow, through the power of the scapegoat, through the power of Messiah Yeshua, who ultimately is the scapegoat, he has the power to turn the evil words of the demons into blessings. So this is another example of what I was just talking about. Someone might walk around and then uh, think, oh, 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 the demons are cursing me. Oh, oh, oh. But if you're walking with God, then he can cause their cursing to be blessings. He uses them as puppets. If we're being afflicted, it's probably because he's trying to get us on the right track. Which brings up another thing, just another a point. It, I'm sorry, it just comes to my mind. Instead of running around trying to do spiritual warfare, just start eating kosher. Start start living kosher. Start being shomer. So thus, this is the no cult involving. So I'm sorry. Thus, this this is no cult involving Azazel as an independent power, 
Rather, it's the fulfillment of the divine command by which the he-goat sent to Azazel as a servant of Hashem. According to this explanation, the ceremony of the scapegoat can be likened to a situation in which a king's follower is preparing a banquet in his honor. The king commands his follower to put aside a portion for a loyal servant. The follower will not himself be offering anything to the servant. He will act solely in accordance with the will of the king, who, out of consideration for the follower, wants all his servants to enjoy the banquet so they can speak well of the host and give him praise. This is why the Kohen Gadol cannot determine on his own which of the two he goes will be for Hashem and which will be for Azazel. He will set out both of them, lay out an eye for Hashem, and only Hashem, by the casting of lots, will decide which one is to be the Azazel. So this is all God, the whole thing. It's not to us. It's not to the Kohen Gadol. It says, this symbolism is meant to teach us that on the day on which our destiny is to being decided, decided, it's not enough to assure that we have forgiveness and love from Hashem. We must also repel the threats from hostile and demonic forces that rise up against us in society or lie in wait for us in nature. It says that the Torah often gives us examples of this. Did our forefathers Jacob not send gifts to his brother Esau to appease his anger, despite Jacob's trust in God and his promise of protection? So the scapegoat kind of reflects that entity. It's a type of, of gift. What's the meaning of it? What's the full understanding? We don't have the full understanding, which is which is why it's a hulk. Why it's something special and unique. Because it's something only God can do. It's only something that only God puts forth. Talking about sin in general, going back to the power of the scapegoat. And again, I want you to keep focused on the reality that ultimately the Mashiach is our scapegoat, ultimately. Because remember that all the offerings, whether it's the scapegoats or the Pesach offering or the Yom Kippur offering or any other offering, it's all reflective of what Mashiach did as the Akedah. And so it says, uh, talking about the very existence of a sinful act. This comes from the Gutnik Humash. This is an insight brought down from the Gutnik Humash. It says, in addition to its effect on the sinner, the sin is an evil entity in itself. Okay, so when we sin, we are actually bringing into our lives an evil entity, not just an evil effect. It's very important. So it says, as it uh, in in the the Pirkei Avot, four eleven, he who commits one transgression against himself co- also creates one accuser. So to commit a sin, and remember that what what's the definition of sin? So this is important. Many of you know this already, but I, you'll find in the in the theological world that exists out there, people will constantly talk about being forgiven of sins and having their sins wiped away and not sinning and et cetera, et cetera. But few people can articulate with clarity what is sin. And I find that to be especially troubling because how can you get rid of something, repent of something, not do something, and you have you really don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're talking about. How can you repent of something you don't even know? So the answer is, is that sin is a violation of Torah, right? 
Sin is a violation of Torah. Murdering is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Lying is a sin. Eating pork is a sin. Eating lobster is a sin. Eating shrimp is a sin. Not dressing modestly is a sin. Getting a tattoo is a sin. Okay? So, and there's a host of other things, of course. So, uh, when we sin, that is when we violate God's law, when we got, violate God's holy Torah, which is everlasting, we, cre- we, we sin. And as a result of our sin, we now create not just an ill effect, but we create an evil entity. Just like when you perform a mitzvah, you create a, a holy entity and an and, 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 uh, and angelic-like entity. You know, the, the movie uh, It's a Wonderful Life where every time uh, we hear a bell ring, an angel gets its wings. Uh, probably had a Jewish writer in that. <laughs> Maybe. He was a, a study the Talmud and understood that, hey, listen, when we, when we perform a mitzvah, we, we, we create, as it were, a, a, let's just call it a good en- energy. You know, not to be too uh, hippy-dippy, but a, a good energy. Uh, and so this is the reality. So we have, we have to deal with that. It's, it's, this, this is what the power of teshuva is all about, is when we, we have to deal with that, not just get rid of the ill effects. We have to deal with the evil entity. This is the power of Mashiach. The power of Mashiach is not just to forgive you of your sins. The power of Mashiach is to get rid of the evil entity in your life. It says, thus, when we speak of the atonement power of the scapegoat and the day of Yom Kippur, we need to clarify. Do they atone merely for the effects of the sin on the guilty person? leaving the sin as evil entities that continue to exist in the world? Or do they achieve atonement by totally eradicating the very essence, or the very existence, rather, of the sins? Obviously, we it takes away the existence, because it says later on in this uh, article here, the scapegoat clearly has a greater power of atonement than even the day of Yom Kippur itself. Since the scapegoat eliminates the very existence of sin, whereas the day of Yom Kippur merely wipes away the personal effects of one's sin, since the scapegoat has the greater power of atonement, it is more capable of achieving atonement with, even without the additional assistance of one who does teshuva. That is at least for the, uh, as it says here, um, those uh, lesser severe sins. The point being is that the reason that we have the scapegoat upon which we confess our skins, our sins, excuse me, our sins, and it takes it into the wilderness, the reason it takes it into the wilderness is because it's symbolic of the fact that it is removing the very existence of the evil entity of sin itself. Not just the effects. So Mashiach being, again, as I said earlier, I want you to stay focused, Mashiach is the ultimate scapegoat. We confess upon him our sin, and as a result, it doesn't just take away the effects of sin in our life, but it takes away the entity of sin from our life. Very important, I believe, distinction. Now, um, 
the Apostle Paul wrote a letter, and in his letter he shared a statement, and I believe that this was more or less what he was alluding to when he said, talking about the Mashiach, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. I agree with that. The Mashiach was sinless, did not know sin. He was lived a sinless life. It is possible, by the way, to live a sinless life. We cannot escape the 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 uh, destiny of death because we're sons of Adam, but Mashiach was not a son of Adam, which is why death had no uh, hold on him. But um, we are under that. But it is possible to live a sinless life. It is possible to live a sinless life. It is possible not to break the Torah. If it were not possible, then punishment would not be just. Someone says, what's well, impossible to live by the Torah? Is it? That if that's the case, then God punishing us is an unjust act. Think about it. How can you punish for something for some, someone for something they can't help doing? Can you punish somebody for breathing? Can you punish somebody for not being able to jump off of a building and fly? No. Why? Because you can't punish them for something they're incapable of. A person can't stop breathing unless they're dead. They can't jump off a building and fly. Unless they have, uh, what do you call it, parachute or one of those uh, glider backpack things, or unless they're, you know, something else. But you can't do, you can't punish them, right? So if God gives us a law and He knows we can't fulfill it, and then He sends us the Gehenim for it, for not fulfilling it, then that, my friends, Hasve Shalom is an unjust judge. Who does that? So it is possible to live a sinless life, but the fact is we choose not to, and as a result, we create evilness for ourselves. The only one who can take that away in its totality is the scapegoat, i.e. the Akedah, Messiah Yeshua. Now, how do we repent? How do we repent completely? How do we repent completely? Rambam lays it out here. I've, I've said this before. I've, I've actually talked about this um, in for many, many years, this is the first time I've actually seen it articulated concisely here, um, and it's always been there, even though I just haven't read it before, but this comes from Rambam, his Laws of Teshuvah. And what's exciting for me about this is I've said this very thing, not realizing that it was part of the Laws of Teshuvah, which for me is just a wonderful confirmation, so that's just a personal side note. But anyway, Rambam writes... Um, he describes the method of repenting from one's sins. He says one first needs to identify each sin specifically. And I've told people that they should find some quiet time, take out a piece of paper, and write. start writing down your sins, your faults, your flaws. And ask, ask Hashem to help you. And uh, it's going to be a long list, most likely. Because you might start out thinking the, or of the general things, and then suddenly God starts bringing to your mind more specific things. So he says, identify them specifically, and then feel bitter and remorseful about each one, and resolve never to do the, them again. This should be done, or should, should be accompanied with a verbal confession. And so I've told people, once you get your list written down, then you should 
obviously feel remorseful about it. You should look at your list and just feel sorry, sincerely sorry. And then you should go through each and every one of the things that you've written down, confess it out loud, that you're guilty of that sin, that you resolve never to commit it again, that you break the power of that sin in your life and you ask Hashem to help you never to commit sin, that specific sin. You go through each and every one, not the whole list in general, each and every single one. And then Rambam adds that you should donate to charity along with a complete change of identity and lifestyle. So the charity aspect is wonderful. You should commit you should you should uh, as recompense for the list that you have before you designate a certain amount of money to give to charity. And then what I tell have told people to do is to take the list and destroy it, tear it up. If it's safe to burn it, burn it. And uh, consider it like dust. Like it's never never happened. And that Hashem should help you to move forward. And as, as Ramban says here, change your identity and lifestyle. This In many, in many cases... This goes along with uh, conversion. That's why, why, why this is so important with respect to conversion. When somebody converts to Judaism, they often, after the mikvah, take on a new name. And it's not just, listen, I want you to understand something because people misunder- misunderstand. Oh, you just took a Jewish name. You're just trying to sound Jewish. Uh, blah, 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 blah. No. You take on a new identity. This is why people will take a Jewish name and then and then the, they still have the name they were given and it's that's the, their legal name you know it's on all their legal documents their bank accounts or whatever and and sometimes it happens in the synagogue where uh, I'll I'll need to uh, I don't I don't know hypothetically I'll need to write somebody a check and so I sit down to write them a check for whatever maybe I'm I'm. I don't know, going to their house for uh, Hanukkah, and so I'm going to help pay for the meat or whatever, I don't know. And I'll sit down and I'll think, wait, wait, I need to write the check in their legal name because that's for the bank accounts, not their Hebrew name. What is their name? I have no idea. I have to to call them and ask because I've so identified them with that Hebrew name that I've forgotten that old person. And many people are like that. That old that name that they have is the name they were given in a lot of ways is just an old identity that just, you know, it's just there. So one more thing, one last thing as we're concluding today. The power of teshuva. I love this. This is a great insight from the Gutnik Humash. It says, Teshuva has the power of retroactivity. For although the past is no longer under a man's prerogative, nevertheless, God, who is beyond any category of time and therefore transcends the categories of time and limitations, has endowed Teshuvah with a special and wonderful quality, by means of which man can regain mastery over his past. Moreover, by means of the special power of Teshuvah, man is able not only to render the past neutral and ineffective, but he can even reverse it and turn it into something positive. As our sages of blessed memory have said, willful wrongs become, in this case, as though they were merits. Yoma 86b from the Talmud. 
It says, This power of teshuva, whereby man is enabled to regain control over the past, is possible because, on the one hand, it is derived from a source which transcends the category of time as mentioned above, that is God. And on the other hand, it is drawn upon fully and implemented in a way that is permeates the whole being of the repenter, reaching to the very core of his divine soul, which likewise transcends time and, and change and always remains loyal to godliness. So in other words, when we repent, we come into the light, the light of Torah, the light of God, the light of Mashiach. And as uh, Einstein taught that if one comes into the speed of light and is able to go even go a bit faster than the speed of light, one can go back in time. In other words, time, my friends, is controlled, made up of light, and the light is God's Torah. So therefore, when we repent and we come into the light, we are able to go back in time, which we otherwise have no control over, and through God can change our past to a past of righteousness versus a past of sin. And that, my friends, is the power of teshuva. It doesn't just change the present. It changes the past, the present, and, with God's help, the future. End of our Aliyah today. May you have a beautiful, wonderful, and magnificent day. With God's help, we will see everybody tomorrow for the third Aliyah. Until then, be blessed, be transformed, be whole and holy and happy. In Yeshua's name, amen.